welcome to the Recovery Coach Podcast, where we focus on person-centered recovery, peer support, and all the recovery things. I'm Allison Broderick. And I'm Seth Harris. And today, we're going to try something new. We're actually going to begin what we're calling the HOPE series, HOPE and being an acronym for hearing other people's experiences. And this is our opportunity to invite guests into the studio for the first time. Yes. And we're very excited. You'll see these coming throughout. They may not be continuous. Uh, there'll probably be a few of just Allison and I, old boring Allison and I, once again. But we do want to invite other people's stories into this whole recovery experience. Allison, tell us who we have with us today. Oh, my goodness. I'm super excited about this. So we've been trying to get lovely Jean and Jeff on the show for quite some time and i'm so excited that y'all are launching the series with us and the crowd roars (laughs) so gene and i gene schultz and i met a few years ago it was pre-covid and we were at Kennesaw State University, they were hosting an event for their collegiate recovery program, and I just connected with Jean immediately. It was just that kindred spirit, and from then on, we started talking on the phone, and um, I just thought you were a great addition to our team, and so you joined our team a couple of years ago. So our team being our team being Seth Harris, Allison Broderick and Jean Schultz. And Jean has an incredible recovery story, not only uh, as it relates to your personal recovery, but also family recovery. And so we're happy to have Jean's husband, Jeff. So Jean and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah. so, so be here. I know that you share your story often, and it's part of your service to the community, but also for yourselves. If you don't mind, just share a little bit about how you even came to recovery. We haven't talked about family recovery on the podcast yet. We've been holding out. Waiting, waiting, waiting for the for the two of you to, to be a part of this story. No pressure. <laughs> if y'all would just share a little bit. Well, initially, the whole concept of family recovery was, was kind of born to me. Um, and when we had a family member, I mean, I could say our son, because the story's probably pretty public, you know, struggled with addiction. The last thing I thought about is, boy, I really need to fix me. <laughs> And um, Gene and I started talking, and I think the counselors at his treatment program recommended that we start going to our own meetings. And again, okay, but I don't need to fix me. But I started going to meetings, honestly, not to fix me, because again, I didn't have a problem, but to try to figure out a way to fix Josh. I wasn't the one using Oxy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I didn't think I needed meetings. Yeah, they started talking about things like enabling. It's like, wait, I didn't buy the drugs for him. Uh, he started hearing terms like detached with love, which to me as a writer was the biggest oxymoron I had ever heard in my life. I can detach or I can love. I can't do both. And um, it took a while. It took a long while, a lot of mistakes, but I was exposed to the 12 steps also. And um, it's exact same steps as someone who's in recovery. You understand powerlessness? And I was powerless over 
Josh, our son, he came to believe in higher power, that whole thing about turning it over. And it's just like recovery. It's, it's a lot of ups and downs. It became a passion for me. I'll let Gene speak for Gene, but I didn't think that this would be the path that I was on, that it would be something that I would really want to do for the rest of my life. And I guess because my new quest in life was to destigmatize addiction. I thought addiction had a certain face. And when I started going to parent meetings, when I started going to family meetings and the place where he was in treatment, I looked around and I joked, it looked like a swim tennis association meeting to me. And so, yeah, that's kind of the path we're on. Gene, share with me a little bit about what brought you to recovery. I know you mentioned your, your son. Was he a teenager at the time? What was what was going on? Um, he first entered treatment as a young adult. He was probably, what, 20, 21? He turned... I know he turned 22, I think, in treatment. treatment. Um, And so I think Josh always struggled with um, depression, anxiety. Um, You know, we kind of had a hard time seeing what was sort of normal adolescent issues and then what was later to become a more serious addiction to substances. And, you know, that was always a, a fine line. You know, he was a sensitive child, uh, sensitive young adult. It was difficult to, we tried our best to guide him at certain times and um, offer support in various ways. I knew he was probably using, experimenting um, in high school, probably started late middle school, high school. But truth be told, we also experimented at that age also. And so it was really hard to tease out and it was very hard to accept when we saw him going downhill, you know, becoming more secretive, you know, things just continued to get worse. He didn't live at home. Um, you know, as a young adult, he was in college. He was away at school. So it was kind of easy to, to sort of have my, I feel like I had my head in the sand. Like I didn't want to face up to the fact that my son was becoming less and less reliable. His grades were okay. As far as I could see, you know, he, he earned scholarships. He kept jobs. Now, there were issues where maybe sometimes he couldn't keep a job. He could always find one, it seemed like. So, you know, sort of the normal ups and downs and also red flags along the way um, that that I was not clear about. You know, I, I chose not to look at that. It was really painful because I took it as you're an ineffective parent. It's reflection on you. And um, and it was very difficult to to work through that and it was very difficult when he first went into treatment when we first saw you know there were a lot of oh gosh just his behavior just continued to decline you know again a lot of lying you know things getting uh disappearing from the house um a lot of sayings like oh i'll be there yeah and then never hear from him again you know not reliable um not accountable and you know when things really escalated we were talking to professionals along the way and Several mentioned, you know, you might want to consider he might need treatment and you might need to pull him out of UGA right now. I'm like, well, heck no. You know, you're close to graduating. You better just get yourself together. Get that degree. <laughs> Lo and behold, he stopped going to classes a long time ago. You know? Yeah, he had pulled himself out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the whole just yes, get, exactly. get a degree thing because we're all sort of either consciously or unconsciously with this time clock in our head, you know, by a certain time you know you're supposed to go to college graduate move on have a family whatever and it's like so number one was suddenly dealing with that clock didn't exist anymore 
And the other thing is just the trauma and and denial of, of having a kid struggling with addiction. We have another child and she is quote unquote fine. Okay, she didn't so why him? What what like you said, what did we do wrong? So we certainly can fix this. And it's just the acceptance is difficult. The denial is off the charts. And I, I I've told this story before where um, before Josh ever went into treatment, he had had a couple episodes, but nothing, again, that I thought he needed to go to treatment. We were walking on the street in Athens, and um, I was just, I was there for work a lot, and he was in school, and we were walking on the street, and he's like, like we went into a, a bar or a place, it was a nice place, it wasn't a dive bar or anything, and we sat down, and said, Dad, I think I want to have a beer. I said, okay, that's fine, you didn't, you know, you're 21, you can have a beer. And uh, he goes, well, can you do me a favor, though? Can you watch me? I said, what? He goes, just, I just want to have one beer. Just make sure I only have one. Now, me, father, com- in complete denial, and, of course, my son is perfect, right? right? I'm thinking, wow, what a bright, responsible young man. Mm-hmm. He wants me to watch him to make sure he only has one beer. I'm so proud of him. I love him so much. Isn't that, as opposed to... You dumbass. <laughs> he clearly on some level knows he has a drinking problem. Why don't you see that? He actually has to ask his father to not have a second drink. Right. And that, that was the level of my denial. And you said the word enabling, which none of us want to think of ourselves as enablers, but right. It, right. it comes in many forms, right? Okay. Including denial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just, I mean... You know, we enable in ways, we talk about this all the time, I mean, it, it, because it comes from a good place, it comes from your heart, it doesn't come from the head, right? And so we enable in ways we don't even think about. Okay, we give him 50 bucks because he's running short on cash and he's starving college kid. But wait a minute, we're paying for his rent, he's already getting money for food, he's getting this, where is all his money going? You just don't think about it, you just think of, I'm going to take care of my son and you know, me personally, I was focused on the wrong things. He had good grades. He he seemed to have friends. His friends weren't like mainstream student body type, leader type guy. That's okay. I didn't view that as an issue. He's eccentric. Um, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, um, and, and he knew what he wanted to do for a living, you know. And so it's like, okay, to me, he had all his ducks in a row. What I viewed as the important ducks anyway. Okay, he got drunk on weekends in Athens. Well, okay, well, that didn't exactly put him in exclusive cat, you know. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, again, it's it's difficult. It was, I won't speak for all parents, but it was difficult for me to accept that he really had a problem. Mm-hmm. Until yeah. it was too late, we all realized he had a problem. Yeah. yeah. And it was still hard when he was in treatment for me to accept what pro- the professionals were saying about him. Which you was? Know? Which was, you know, he, <laughs> Miss Schultz. Your son needs to break up with his girlfriend, and it is, you know, it's substances, it's alcohol, it's pills, you know, you basically, you name it. Yeah, and, everything um, you don't want to hear. Right, right. And I was just like, uh, I don't think you're talking about the same person, <laughs> you right. know. Uh, you know, I was, it was rough. It was rough. <laughs> yeah. um, today, of course, I could, you know, I see it in a whole different light, thank goodness. Um, but it was really hard to, like, just sit in these um, family meetings um, with and listen to what other people were saying about him and what the signs were. Um, and I saw something written on his chart once um, that, you know, when he went into treatment, he was um, suicidal. And, um, and that just, I just remember seeing those words on the page. 
and and that that kind of chipped away at that like oh yeah this is serious this is mm. this is not what you're thinking and and the question i came to myself too as a at a parent meeting was why is uga that degree from uga so important to you right now mm. you know why that's the thing that kept coming to my mind and i'm not saying this was necessarily y'all's case but i do talk to a lot of parents um they're trying to figure out they're kind of at that beginning point that you guys have already talked about and they're trying to figure out what in the heck am I dealing with what's going on here and I think for some of them they're working through the shame piece like I'm a bad parent this can't be true a lot of it is just denial and in some cases just ignorance about addiction and how it works you know that's not my son there he's not the kind of person that has this problem right but there's also a level to it as well that is um is this is he living out his story or her story, you know, or am I projecting what I want for my child onto their experience? And there's so many layers to which all that gets to, you know, I mean, I know my situation, it's funny listening to y'all because I, it's like, I'm listening to my parents, <laughs> but I mean, it was, it was kind of different because my mom had already gone through it with my father who got sober when I was about 10. So she kind of knew it was like her second go around, <laughs> but it was a lot of the same stuff. It's like, Hey mom, I need money. Oh yeah. I'm doing this. Oh, why haven't you called in three weeks or two months or, you know, and, and as trying to get to where parents are at, I don't know, like, what are y'all's thoughts on being on this side of it? Right. Like what are some things that maybe parents might want to think about in terms of where they're at? And also loved ones, not, not True. just parents, yeah. but family members. It's not always mom and dad. Sometimes they're not even in the picture or somebody else is the one calling. I mean, just the level to which there is the, what am I facing? And then how do I talk to myself? Because everybody's affected, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell them, they'll be like, well, what do I do? And I'm like, well, what are you doing for you? Which, mm -hmm. which is so counterintuitive, especially oh, for that's a the parent tough one. Or, yeah. one or husband, wife. It's like, wait, wait a minute. I, again, I, I'm not, I may come to a meeting for you to tell me how to take care of me. Tell me what to do with my son. Oh, and Seth and I were talking about this earlier today. We've worked in mental health and addiction treatment for some time. And, and so what are you doing to take care of yourself? Well, for Seth and I, I can say it, it's like, oh, well, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And yet for most loved ones, it's crickets. It's what do, you, what do you like, Justin? What do you mean? Yeah. I'm not the one that needs to be fixed. Yeah, we get calls all the time, and obviously, we talk to parents within our community and our group. And somebody called me last week. They'd been to a couple of meetings before, but not to the point of they were really in the program. And this person was just a mess. And you know, I talked to them for a while, and finally, I said, "It's like, what, what do I do? What do I do?" I said, like, "You know, what you need to do go and take a walk. <laughs> Seriously, mm -hmm. go do something for yourself today." Whether it's go to a movie, take a walk, go work out, do whatever you want to do, but do, and that just was like, wait, no, that's not why I called you, you know? I want you to fix this for me. Right, yeah. right. And invariably, like, I know sometimes when Virginia and I gave talks or would meet with new parents, again, the first question is, tell me what I can do to fix my kid. And we're like, so you're like, well, what do we tell other people? The first thing is, it's the same steps. Understand powerlessness. That has to be a starting point to understand that you're not going to be able to do this for them. Mm. But you can do things to sort of 
put up that wall, that that boundary, the um, to stop the codependency, to stop the things that you don't even realize that you're doing, um, that are sort of enabling them. Um, but it takes time. I mean, it's like we we joke all the time. And if you go to a Barnes and Noble and you go to that aisle with parenting magazines, it's you know for for expecting mothers, it's where do I expect when I when I'm expecting? And then it's like how to have the perfect prodigy two year old, three year old, five year old. There's not one book that says what do I do when my kid turns out to be addicted to oxy. And nobody would buy it if there was. Their kid would never get addicted yeah. to oxy. And then, and then you've got to get that look from the cashier when you show up. <laughs> yes, for a friend of mine. I think yeah. she needs it. Yeah, you got my ten sports. Asking for a friend. <laughs> no, I like how you say that though, because the recovery principles, and I'm thinking specifically about acceptance, surrender honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, these these kind of core things that I'll share a lot with guys. The universality of it beyond addiction or other things, it just anybody in their life can probably benefit from some piece of that, right? I, I know that we can get so caught up in why is this happening, you know, or why is it like this? And for me, it's always been this is what is happening Correct. and this is what I can do. Absolutely. Yeah. We were given a book early on, I suggested to, to read a book uh, by William Cope Moyers. It's called Broken. And in it, he tells his story of being addicted to crack cocaine and his family situation and the ups and downs of being in treatment. And basically at one point in his treatment, he comes to the realization, there is no answer to why. Why, why am I like this? Why can't I get better? So stop asking the question. And that was a breakthrough for me. So every once in a while in our meetings, I read this certain excerpt of Broken Mm -hmm. because it's the book that had the most profound effect on me than anything else. I mean, I love like all the Melody Beatty books and all the self, and they're all great, codependent or more, they're all really good. But Broken by by William Cote Morris, which is essentially an autobiography. And he too was an accomplished journalist. So he sort of had that connection. Everybody knew his dad, Bill Moyers, and he ended up getting clean here in Atlanta, the same place our son went to treatment. And um, there's an excerpt of the book. It's, it's probably three quarters of the way through the book where he goes through this whole soliloquy of don't ask the question why I have to stop asking the question why, which is something I tell people all the time. But when I read this excerpt in meetings once in a while, I still get choked up because that is that was my kind of aha moment. Since the book, I connected with him one time and then now Gene and I both become friends with him. And it's so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very cool. But that was, that's just a, and that's just a question. Like Seth said, why is this happening to me? You know, I grew up with three friends and somebody else gave this example to me. We grew up together, same neighborhoods. We're all wives, kids. We did stuff together. We all have jobs. Went to school together. Four of us go out for beers. You know, once a week, we each have two beers. Three of them go home. Why does one want to stay and have six more drinks? Oh, uh, that was me. Yeah, yeah. right here. <laughs> two, two for one and not finishing the second still yeah. doesn't make sense yeah. to me. Still, yeah. That's alcohol abuse. Or when you go home, you drink alone. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yes. Please, because yeah. then I don't have to involve you in. Right. You won't see what I'm doing. Right. Well, it's not even that. I'm that self-centered. I, it's, yeah. This is my thing. I don't want to share it with you. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's like the normal thing, right? It's like, well, I've been doing this all my life. You can't suddenly tell me at the age of 17 or 19 or 27 or 38 that I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why me? Why now? I mean, why, why, why? And now? it's counterproductive. Totally. I agree. Yes. We will include that in the Yeah, we'll put, we'll put a link to uh, the book. 
But, you know, that's so true because when I'm working with peers or clients and I keep hearing that why in some way, shape, or form, Mm -hmm. why me, I gently encourage them to reframe. Let's not even put labels on it. We know that a life without any substances, mood-altering substances, is a healthier way of life, period. But again, these are concepts that I understand today. For someone who is listening to this podcast and has a loved one who is still struggling and using, abusing substances, we talked about what are you doing to take care of yourself, drop the why. Mm -hmm. What are some other basic concepts you would offer? Well, I was going to say, I mean, the parent, the, the way the why looks as a parent is basically, let me try to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Let me figure this out. Let me, let me see what the reason for this is. And then I'll attack that reason as opposed to just accepting that it is. Once you accept that it is, then you can go to do the things that you need to do. And again, then we go to meetings. Um, for me, I, maybe because I'm a journalist, I, I felt like I had to, I truly understand what addiction was. And again, Broken opened that up for me. And yeah, just reading some books and going to meetings and getting a sponsor, working steps, doing all those things that yeah. I never thought I'd be doing. Right. <laughs> right. right. No, I agree. I was so grateful that early on, you know, we were introduced to a community. We weren't the only parents or we weren't the only, you know, loved ones going through this and had suffered trauma of, you know, loved ones really hurting you because of their, their disorder. So I really just let that community help me. It could be somebody who was just a little further down the road, same circumstances, a lot of shared experiences. So for one thing, that was so refreshing to me to know that I wasn't alone. There were people that totally got it. And when I, you know, something bad had happened, I could pick up the phone, I could go to a meeting, I could reach out to somebody. And I knew they would just let me say what I needed to say. And so I could hear it and move forward, you know, and I really used a lot of the literature for uh, Families Anonymous that we were involved with. Invariably, I'd be picking up a meditation book, I just open it up. I was even too stressed to even find the date. (laughs) I couldn't even tell you what day it was, but I could tell you. Just let me read something. Yes. (laughs) Let me get my head around something more positive, you know, and open it up. And it was probably on something, uh, daily meditation. That was exactly what I needed here at that moment. You know, maybe it was on acceptance or honesty or community. That really helped. That terminal uniqueness, it's the same for parents. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, you're, you grew up in a nice neighborhood, upper middle class. You're surely the only one in this neighborhood of two, three hundred houses that have this problem. Right. That's what you're thinking at the time. You're all you're all alone. I'll never forget we're going to Parent Week, uh, Josh's first week in treatment, and I'm sitting in a big auditorium. I don't think she was there this one day, and the doctor of this place puts up a PowerPoint. Now, first of all, we, this was at the point where people didn't really use old PowerPoints anymore. Okay, so that's number one. Now, the slides on this PowerPoint were really old, too. So I'm watching this, these slides. It's like, you know, does your loved one do this? And every slide I'm looking at is like, yeah, yeah. How did you know Josh? Yeah. I'm, 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 this is, I'm seriously watching this. Right? And I'm thinking, 
wait, this is a PowerPoint. This must be really old. Wait, this is a really old PowerPoint because I could see the scratch marks on the slide. <laughs> and that's when that whole kind of turmoil uniqueness started to, okay, I guess he's not the only one. And then you start going to meetings, you know, and, and I remember I had one parent when we started taking a more active role in meetings, one parent I was talking to on the phone, um, she goes, I don't know if I can go to meetings. What if I see somebody I know? I said, okay, what if you do? She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, actually, you know, we're all about connectivity and community, this and that. It seems to me, if you met like your next door neighbor, that actually is a huge advantage because now you have this bond and you can, you can lean on each other. How great would that be? She's like, I never really thought about it that way, you know. And you just don't, again, because there's just so much shame and such a stigma connected to this, not just for the person who's in recovery, but the family members and the parent. It's nothing you want to talk about. It's nothing you want out there. It's nothing when you do that stop and chat thing in the middle of the grocery store. Hey, how's it How are you doing? Hey. Great, great. How's so-and-so? Oh, he's fine, you know. And you realize later, they don't really give a shit. I mean, it's just like, you know, just talk for 30 seconds and, and go get your canned yeah. soup. I mean, just, you know. So, I mean, people, aren't, people aren't thinking about me as much as I think that they are. Yes, yeah, that's right, right. Well, and it's funny you say that because I, I actually had somebody that I've worked with who said, it's so funny how this certain illnesses we don't want to talk about. It's like, if I got a back issue, I'm going to go ask everybody like, hey, you know a good back doctor? Right. You know? Everyone's going to know about it. And, and it's right. okay. Right. But this thing that's like life or death, mm-hmm. and we choose to really try and not, let's just make it go away. Mm-hmm. And what I had to learn was it doesn't go away. You change. You become mm-hmm. somebody different. You live a different life, which we know we talk a lot about being better than it could ever have been before. Right. And I think some parents are just in that same spot where it's like, I just want him to get better. And then we can go back to being the being be, be normal. Yeah, the be wonderful normal. family yeah, and, that and, we are. And you yeah. know, there are yeah. bad situations in life that have been normalized. Okay. Some people get cancer. Some people have some other debilitating disease. Some people lose their job and they're poor. And we have these things, as you probably heard, called the casserole diseases. Okay. If you're sick or you have a spouse that's sick, everybody in the neighborhood makes you a casserole. But what if your son goes into treatment? Did you get a casserole? We did not get a casserole. No. No. Um, and, yeah, and, we're going to have to make them. Yeah. At least, at least, <laughs> at least cookies. Can you just bring some cookies on? Um, and, and by the way, you know, if you go to church or temple, does the, does the father, the priest, does the rabbi, do they talk about? No. And I'll never forget this. I, forever grateful to a former rabbi who was at the synagogue we're a member of. And we were talking, he knew about our, our issue, Josh's issues and stuff. And he goes, I think you're going to like my, my sermon this year. This is before the high holidays, which is like, you know, there's, there's two, two days a year when every Jew goes to temple. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like, it's like Easter and Christmas. Right. right. And, you know, normally it's some big picture thing about, you know, what it's like to be a Jew or support Israel or Semantic. And our rabbi, now I'll call him out Fred Green, who was just phenomenal, starts talking about the addiction problems. Wow. I'm getting choked up about it now, yeah. but it's like sitting there and, you know, afterwards I give him a hug. But I can tell you for a fact that the sermon, while it connected with some people, I think some people went to meetings as a result of it because they sure. talked about it. It was also polarizing. Why am I coming to synagogue this one time to hear about this. Why don't you talk about something that, that affects me? And I know it was polarizing. It was, there were no regrets in him doing it mm. because it reached people. Courageous. You know, it's, it's that whole stigma we talked about. 
Yeah, it's so true. And, and you know, we call it in our industry, we, we know it to be a family disease. Yes. If y'all will just share a little bit about what that meant for you to you when you first heard it. I look at it like this. It took me time to develop my own addiction. Therefore, it takes time. I've been working hard on this thing. Yeah, I did a lot <laughs> a of research. job. <laughs> but for me, I had to take that step back, take that deep breath and realize recovery is going to be the same where it takes time and it takes patience. Same with family recovery. Mm-hmm. So if you'll speak to the, the family disease aspect, what it means and what it meant for you when you first heard it. One of the first things, and like Jeff said, you know, we started learning more about it. So it became a little less scary. And when our son was in treatment, and then I felt like, okay, then I can sleep at night because somebody else is going to watch him tonight. So that was great. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just a gradual process. I had to immerse myself in the community, learn to try to accept things, learn about the 12 steps. Um, it's, It's a very slow process. But what I noticed was that in a very kind of a gradual change, I became, I was able to separate myself, my actions from what was going on with Josh. And that, that little separation got stronger and stronger. And so then it became, well, you know, what he is choosing is going to be his choice and he will face the consequences or he'll have to just deal with whatever he decides to do in these instances. And I don't have to be involved. Which that is detach with love yeah it's it's and we tell people i tell sponsees all the time because i sponsor people too it's like like your emotions are your emotions you're going to feel things okay if my son relapses i'm gonna feel it i can't stop that emotion but my program is about the action okay it's about separating the head and the heart so i think one thing we learn in our program is that number one there are very 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 few things that I would qualify as a life and death decision. Okay. And I think initially as parents, it's like, Oh, geez, he did this or she did this. I have to do this. Now you swoop in because you think that's your job as a parent. and You know, better, and you know, the right thing to do, even if it's sometimes not the right thing to do, but you're going to swoop in, you're going to do what you can. And so one thing I think that Gene and I have learned is that whole detachment things. Okay. Number one, I don't have to make this decision today. Now, I might eventually make the wrong decision, but what I'm going to do is honor my feelings, okay? My program teaches me is, is it's a program of honesty, as you know. So I'm going to be honest with myself, and I'm going to be honest with other people. If I have to be honest with myself, I have to honor my feelings and process things and think about things for a while. So if it's any serious decision, we're going to take 24 hours to decide. Even if it ends up being not the perfect thing, you know what? We honored our decision. We all make mistakes, and that's fine. And so we learn to live with that. And the one thing I think we learned when we started doing that as parents is often within those 24 hours, one of two things happen. Number one, the problem resolved itself. He mm-hmm. fixed it. Yeah. Or it's not an issue anymore. I'll, I'll tell you one perfect story. He was starting a new job. He was still struggling to recover. I think he was in a three-quarter house at the time of this, right? And it had been a while since he got a job. He finally got a job. He wasn't driving. So he had to take two buses to get to this job. He was at this time probably 22, 23 years old. And so his first bus was late. All right. And 
Consequently, he missed a second bus. I was on my way driving to Athens for a work situation. It was pouring rain that day, too. And I'm probably about 20 minutes outside of Athens, and he calls me in a panic. He's like, Dad, this happened, this happened, and I'm going to be late. My first, it, Literally the first day of work. And I'm, I immediately am, like, shifting into rescue mode, right? He goes, I... I, I I can't, I'm going to miss the bus. It's not da, da, da. I said, well, I said, Josh, I'm almost in Athens. I can't, by the time I get there, you're going to be late anyway. And he was like, okay, let me, let me call you back. And it's like, oh, geez, you know, I'm thinking, yeah. And of course, my mind goes to, he's just going to walk to a bar and drink or something like that. Oh, wow. Right to the fear. His self-esteem, which is already an inch off the ground, something's going to happen. I literally start, on my 316 drive into Athens, I literally start making a U-turn to cut to drive back. Because I'm thinking that's going to be what's going to happen. And as I start to turn back, he calls me back. He goes, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. I said, what happened? He goes, well, sorry, I have to take a breath once while. I realized that, you know, not that far. I'm going to be late, but I could actually just walk it from here. And when I get there, he's just going to have to understand. And that's exactly what happened. He walked. He was late. They totally understood. It was fine. But it was a major, major lesson for me. I didn't have to rescue. And a major lesson for him. So it was one of the first times he really faced a difficult situation. He figured it out for himself. In part because I <laughs> I would say I'd let him do it. Truth is, if I was two blocks away, I would not have let him do it. So it's really circumstances that let him yeah. figure it out for himself. Thank God I was far away. <laughs> Thank God I could not help my son. What was that like when you made that turn back towards Athens and then the remainder of that trip? I was still numb probably the rest of the day. And- Best article he ever wrote. It's funny, I've been a sports writer for 40 years and I'm, and I'm mostly known for two things. One is about the parallel roads that recovered. The other one is about an article I wrote on my mom. She lost her family in the Holocaust in Paris, and it's like those are the. But I'm good with that. Frankly, those are the two articles that meant the most to me. Yeah, right. of course. Well, and I loved earlier what you shared, Jeff, about you never thought in a million years that you and Jean would be where you are today, and right. so passionate about helping other families. And I'm thinking, well, me too. I never thought in a million years I'd be here, and yet I'm so grateful. Oh, yeah. It's given our life, I would speak for myself, but a whole new purpose. My life is so much better. I'm so grateful for, you know, all the struggles. And it really is um, a passion to give other people the hope that change is possible, recovery is real, and we can be of service to others. Well, we all in the room know, you know, we talk all the time about the 12 steps being a roadmap for life. I tell people I process life completely differently now, not just because I've seen hell, you know, mm-hmm. and, and nothing is, yeah, yeah. but, you know, standing at a stoplight in a car and the light turns green and the guy behind you haunts. And in the old days, I'm sticking my, my hand out the window and giving him the finger or yelling at something, right? Or honking back. I've also or, done that yeah, in the yeah, new days, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. But on a good day, now I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. You know, whatever. Breathe. All I control are my thoughts, my actions. Just move on. You process life on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I have something I want to do for the rest of my life, which as I, in the twilight of my my paycheck career. As you think about retirement. It's like, okay, yeah. I have my passion. It's not necessarily just plant daisies, you know, and so it's nice. You're planting 
it's just different seeds than daisies, right? But you're definitely planting seeds. And I look at it as it's even beyond passion, it's purpose. Yeah, I mean, that, that the seed planting thing is, is huge. When we look at, you know, where we've come from, how things have lined up in our own experience. And, you know, I was talking with some people actually yesterday about this. They were talking, operating out of a faith perspective, like, how did I get to this place? And I'm echoing from a recovery perspective, how did I get to this place? And a lot of it is, you know, where I grew up, what I was taught, but also who am I surrounding myself with along the way? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and some of the lessons we learn, to your point, is is things like responding and not reacting or just realizing like it's either all going to be okay or it's all going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And this is different perspectives in response to life, letting life happen as it comes, mm-hmm. learning how to deal with things as they happen. A lot of that is because I experienced something along the way and it's continued to be built upon mm-hmm. as the people we surround ourselves with. I, I did want to just uh, echo one more thing that you talked about. I loved the story about, was it Yom Kippur service or? Yeah. 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 With the rabbi. And, and I share often with people, you know, I feel like places, if you have a platform, if you're a person in a leadership role, you know, the opportunity, and I love the courage that he took that moment, you know, knowing that there was going to be a lot of people there to bring this stuff up because it is happening. There are a lot of people that are starting to make it part of their message, but I think places like, you know, spiritual places like that, even in different institutions we have out there, like where are we going to be seeing leaders step up and talk about this stuff? Now, people ask me in some faith communities, you know, what do we do about it? And I said, well, are you talking about it in your sermons? Are you talking about it in your leadership meetings? You know, these places should be more like hospitals than museums. It's like, let me show up and say, hey, I'm struggling here too, as opposed to, no, no, we're good. Look at how nice we look. Right, yeah. right. So I, I love that story. I really, really appreciate you sharing that. What happens as a couple, you're both working your own program of recovery. What happens when you take the pause, you honor your feelings. So Jean, you honor your feelings. Jeff, you honor yours. 24 hours later, you come together. You're both coming from a place of peace and love and hopefully good rest. And yet you still disagree on how to handle a situation that baffles you. What do you do there? You didn't know you were going to ask this question before. I had to. No, no, that's no. a great question. That's a great question. So it's that's very realistic. Yeah. So, like, Gene and I often do not respond initially the same to a situation. Okay. I was the rescuer. I, I generally, I'm going to go in and Gene was the, I want to kick his ass person. And I realized, <laughs> and look. That's I, why he got that call on 316. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you didn't. That's why and, I did. yeah. and that's why I love you so yeah, much, right. Gene, because you just kick ass. But that's fine. Everybody, again, emotionally reacts differently. And I, I, I joke sometimes that we were like, you know, two ships. I go this way. She goes this way. And then within 24 hours, as we process it, sometimes we come together. Sometimes we pass each other. And I go from, I want to rescue him, do I want to kill him? She goes, I want to kill him, I want to rescue him. And all <laughs> She convinces you to change your mind. Yeah, <laughs> and then she feels bad. She really is a queen. Yeah. Um, all we can do is, is try to find common ground, which we generally did. I think we found that when we processed things and we thought about things, we were generally on the same page. And in my experience, I will just say that if the two people... I'll speak generically. If two people are really not on the same page, one of them has not let go. For me, it comes mm-hmm. back to the first three steps. They either still think they can control it 
there's a higher power issue, there's a turning over issue. Mm -hmm. And I think fortunately, Gene and I have not had that issue in general. Now there were times I will say like Joss was in jail and I, I got up to bail him out and I had one sock on, I was putting my socks on, putting my shoes on. And this is in the middle of the night. She goes, where are you going? <laughs> and I, I had this great, it's like, well, look, I got, I'm really busy tomorrow, which was true. I'd rather just go bail him out now than tomorrow, this and that. And she's like, no, get your ass back to bed. <laughs> So I took my sock. Take that sock off. Came back to bed. <laughs> you know you'd really rather sleep right now. <laughs> and I'll say this too for for couples because look, it's 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 a family disease. It's a strain on marriages. Yeah, um, Gene and I, during some period of this, we planned to go out once a week. We figured out once a week, and I think it was a, I was going to be like a Thursday night or something like that because it worked out good for both of us. And we were going to go out to dinner, do something. And our only objective that night was to not talk about Josh. Mm. Wow. We were not allowed mean, to talk about Josh. It was hard. It was hard. <laughs> so we were like, we, I, was it silent? The only words that came out of our mouth. <laughs> this is awkward. He's like, I got a first date over at table 10. <laughs> so I think it's, it's, it just takes work. And commitment. So did you commit to every Thursday night for some time? We did. Yeah, we did. And it, it was awkward. It was hard at times. But, you know, it, it got better and it was okay. I think it was a, a valent effort. <laughs> You're still married. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Still married. That's a great idea, though. Um, and just the one thing I would add is that even when we disagreed on what to do next, what we learned from going to meetings and working steps is that for Josh, we had to present a united front. Whatever we decided to do between the two of us, some type of compromise or, or some decision, this is where we stand. I so yeah. agree. And, and we both experience that when there's problems within the family dynamics and you know, the parent, child, this and that, a lot of the problems sometimes stemmed from the parents were on different pages. Yeah. Yes. And they were being played. And that's not to say which one was right, which one was wrong. Yeah. Because again, sometimes we don't know whether our decision was right or wrong, but it's important that decisions are made together. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and there is such power in taking that pause because really there's not much in my life, at least, that requires that immediate decision. The hardest thing we learn in our program, the hardest thing to do is nothing. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to do something. It's hard to do nothing. They say the hardest thing in the world is to sit in the sucky moment and just be okay. Just be okay with it being sucky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so many. You're so true about that because there's so many lessons that come out of this thing. How many times do you say, I'm so glad I didn't do anything and I walked away and then I came back? So true. And when you take time and breathe and sit in the poopy diaper, it loses the intensity. You know, I think about it like this. There's a great recovery comedian Mark Lundholm, and his whole bit is on first thought wrong. Well, my first thought as an alcoholic, even in recovery today, it's usually an alcoholic thought. Well, same might be for parents. That first initial thought, like you on 316 headed towards Athens, was, well, I'm going to turn around. And I can't get to that place alone. I just can't. You mentioned sponsorship and community and and just finding that connection of others who have been on the road before me. So important. Let me ask this too. In terms of 
a few resources. We'll include it in the episode notes. You mentioned the book. You've mentioned meetings. Yeah, there are a number of meetings, codependency, you know, parallel recovery group meetings, Families Anonymous, Al-Anon are the two biggest ones. If somebody has a loved one in recovery at a treatment center, a lot of them have parent help. But I also would say that it's important to find that community. And there are meetings, particularly post-COVID times now, a lot of meetings are in Zoom. So if you can't make it to a meeting, you could log on and find one and keep trying it. There are a number of non-12-step meetings too. We'll put some links in uh, yeah, in the yeah. comments and stuff about places where people can go and try to find some of these. Yeah. And again, I think for me, like I said, Broken taught me about what addiction was. Any of the male beer books, if you go to the Hazleton website, they got a bunch yeah, of Yeah, there's a lot. But it's just educating yourself mm-hmm. and, and putting the focus on you. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't look for resources to try to help. With yeah. the objective, you got to check your motives. Yeah. Right, exactly. There's plenty of that out there. I, I've definitely talked with some families who have been through some family support stuff that was, we're going to teach you how to fix your kid, okay. you know, and so right. it's a good caution. I'm thank you for pointing that out. They need to learn to be adults, be on their own, be independent, be in recovery. Mm-hmm. Recovery is very much about resilience. You know, sometimes people in treatment, treatment providers or people that are in recovery themselves are always trying to do it for them. Yeah. There's a level to which, you know, it's healthy for us to let go. And Seth can put the link to the story too, but the, the story I wrote for the AJC, if you just type my name, Jeff Schultz, and the words lost and found, you know, a Google search bar, right. you'll find it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in there. And I would say too, if people are looking at treatment programs, definitely one of the factors that was so crucial for ours, that was so helpful for all of us, was to have that family time. You know, it would be maybe a support group within the program or definitely family therapy. Or Or a family weekend or something. Exactly. Even though it'd be hard to make those all the time, those have been really beneficial. So, And lastly, the three C's. Can one of you explain that? Sure. Okay. Cheese whiz. I love cheese puffs. Is that included? Yeah, it can work. <laughs> the other three C's. <laughs> I can't control it. I didn't cause it. I can't cure it. Mm. Well, thank y'all. Thank you. And thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we always love to support uh, when everybody reaches out. We love you guys um, subscribing, checking in, sharing, because this stuff is important. Allison, tell the folks how they can get a hold of us and let us know, too, if you would like to participate and maybe be a guest with us. Just log on to our website, and that is therecoverycoachatl.com, and you'll see phone information and email and all of that good stuff. All right. Thank you, beautiful people. We love y'all, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.